Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Will Ashon on his new book, Chamber Music, about the Wu-Tang in 36 pieces. Will Ashon is the author of Strange Labyrinth, Outlaws, Poets, Mystics, Murderers and a Coward in London's Great Forest, and two novels. He previously ran Big Dada Recordings, where his artists included Roots Maneuver, MF Doom, Wiley and Diplo. And today we're going to be talking about Will's latest book, which is Chamber Music, about the Wu-Tang in 36 pieces. Will, welcome to Little Atoms. Hi, nice to be here. Thank you for having me. So this book is ostensibly about the Wu-Tang Clan's debut album, but it's more expansive than that. Um, so tell me where the, the idea for the book came from. Yeah, I think, I think it's fair to say that it's more expansive than that. Uh, the, the basic idea, actually, in a way, came out of finishing up Strange Labyrinth. Strange Labyrinth was the first time I'd written non-fiction, and I'd written, I'd, to greater or lesser degrees of success, I'd written fiction for the 20, 25 years previous, since I was 20 or so. Uh, so it was a big change for me in terms of method, and so I guess I started thinking about uh, what that, method entailed what it was that I was doing and I don't think of myself as being a dazzlingly original thinker I'm not a uh so what I felt that I was doing was in a way was collaging together lots of opinions from lots of people I liked I like a quote I like a good quote whenever possible and placing them together in such a way that hopefully something new it came out of it or something interesting uh followed on from it but certainly by placing two things in contrast, hoping that they'd cast a slightly different light on each other. And as I was finishing up Strange Labyrinth and thinking this through, I suddenly thought, well, shit, this is a bit like hip-hop. This is, you know, the other side of my life, Bill, my writing life, as you said, is that I ran a hip-hop label for, for 15, 20 years, and before that I was a hip-hop journalist. So it had been a big part of my life. And so it was kind of an interesting moment because it felt a little bit as if the two, those two sides of my life that I'd always kept quite separate, really. And actually, when I was writing fiction and running the label, part of the thing I was doing with the fiction was escaping from the day-to-day of the label. So they really did feel like two separate, hermetically sealed chambers. Chambers, so that was a, an accidental uh, pun there. That's good. And then suddenly they kind of crashed together. And I thought, wow, so OK, so this is... And, you know, right down to the way hip-hop functions and the idea of keeping it real and authenticity and the truth of what you say and so on, all these ideas suddenly started to, to feed together. And I thought, well, if this is a, a hip-hop way of writing a book, wouldn't it be interesting to apply that to hip-hop? 
which was the initial kernel of the idea for the book. Then beyond that, there was the fact that Enter the Wu-Tang, 36 Chambers, the debut album from the Wu-Tang Clan, was coming up for its 25th anniversary, which seemed kind of astounding to me. I've just literally just turned 50. So I was 25 when Enter the Wu-Tang came out. So it kind of also bisects my life in half. And I was thinking about the fact that 25 years from 1993 takes you back to 1968. And I was thinking about how many books had been written about the classic music of that period by 1993, and yet how few books of that sort there seem to be about hip-hop. It still seems to me that it's a music which isn't fully taken seriously. There's still a sense amongst some people that it's not really music. It's not, you know, it's, it's not the real thing. It's, you know, it's not classic soul. It's not modern jazz. It's... It's just this noisy mess of, of stealing, really. I, the idea that collaging is, is some form of theft. So all these ideas kind of came together. And I think probably beyond that, I think working in the music business, one thing you learn eventually is that there's very few better ways to put yourself off music <laughs> than working in that industry. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people would say something similar about the books industry. There's a, there's a sense in which by choosing something you love and turning it into your job you kind of kill the magic a little bit. And certainly by the time I finished at the record label, I'd kind of, I was really tired of music a little bit. I didn't like going out because I'd had to go out for a lot of gigs throughout the time that I was running the label and A&Ring, that's part of your job, is to go out and see music and stand around not giving away too much about whether you're enjoying it. And even recorded music, I wasn't listening to very much. And then gradually, after a year or so, music started to sneak back into my life, I guess. And one of the things about the first Wu-Tang album is it was one of the last albums that I listened to just as a fan before I started writing about music and then went on to run the label. So it was, it kind of felt pure and unsullied by my 20 years in the music business. So it was quite a nice record to go back to from that point of view. But also the 25-year anniversary, I mean, is significant for them, but it wouldn't really matter if it wasn't a significant album. So why do you think it's a significant album? That's very true. Um, I think it's a significant album, uh, I mean, on a number of levels. I mean, within hip-hop, I think it it signalled a return or a re-emphasis on rawness and roughness as a kind of aesthetic as being of aesthetic importance, I guess, in a way that the, the West Coast stuff that had started to predominate around the early 90s w- was smoother and more laid back and lacked some of that kind of uh, off-kilter aggression that I really love in all music. I mean, it's what I love when I listen to jazz or whatever, is that edge of angular kind of uh, sourness, I guess. So from that point of view, I think it was, it was really important. I also think that the way in which the Wu-Tang kind of built this mythology around themselves, built out of all kind of factors that we might unpack a little bit as we go on, kind of made it in a way a kind of archetypal hip-hop album to talk about because it's a really easy record to see, oh, OK, so they took this, then they layered that on top. They took their, you know, their background in The Nation of Gods and Earth, then they layered their interesting kung fu movies on top of that, uh, then they layered this on top of that, they layered a kind of street thing but also a kind of esoteric religious thing. And so you can kind of unpack it, and, and in doing that, you hopefully it gives you a clearer understanding about what a sophisticated art form that music can be and what a uh, an art form which which makes connections and forces the listener to make connections too which is what i think any great art does is it makes you as the apprehender of that work of art start to make your own connections and, and figure things out for yourself and uh, hopefully even move beyond exactly what's 
in it to find out what's beyond it or what direction it was pointing in. So we'll come back to some of those influences on the album in a bit, but tell us a bit about where they come from. Staten Island, New York. Yeah. Um, there's photographs throughout yeah. the book of you know various bits of concrete. It's a car park and flooring. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> they're not the most... Um, uh, I don't know. Like, hopefully they're vaguely evocative, but I admit that they're not... Uh, so Staten Island is it's a fascinating place. It kind of, if I'm asked for an English equivalent, I always talk about Essex, which is another funny tie-in in a way, because obviously my last book was about Epping Forest, which is about that London-Essex borderland. And that's kind of what Staten Island reminds me of. It's the, so there are five boroughs in New York. It's the fifth borough. It's on an island on its own. It's actually nearer to New Jersey. New Jersey kind of sits right around it, and it has, I think, three or four bridges into New Jersey, only one bridge into Brooklyn and then the ferry that runs into Manhattan. I think it's the only borough with more homeowners than renters in the whole of New York. It's the only borough that has consistently voted Republican. So, in effect, it's a kind of suburb, and a lot of the people who moved there moved there in the 60s out of Brooklyn uh, when there were riots in Brooklyn to do with the murdering of a young black teenager. So um, a lot of the Italian-American community kind of... It was white flight. They, they fled to Staten Island. It's the only place I've ever been in America where I've seen two men wearing an Italy football shirt in the same day. I mean, to see anyone in a football shirt in America is a big deal, but to see two is astounding. Uh, so it's got a very strong Italian-American community. It's very suburban, but obviously mixed in to these suburbs in the way you get in parts of London as well. There are these projects, these council estates, in effect, public housing, which is where most of the members of the Wu-Tang either grew up or, or lived from their teen years. And these estates were hit very hard by the crack boom in the early to mid-80s. There was a lot of tension between those estates and a lot of um, rivalry between them. One of the other mythical miracles of the the Wu-Tang Clan was the way in which it brought together people from Stapleton Houses and Park Hill, which at the time, they're about five or ten minutes walk apart, the estates. They're really close. Until you get there, you don't really realise and so uh, in the group there were people, there were MCs from both of those locations, which at the time was kind of unthinkable because they were meant to hate each other. So, so yeah, so there's a, all that going on. And I think um, going there was fascinating because in your head, listening to a Wu-Tang record, you imagine these kind of gothic tower blocks out of Gotham City or something. You imagine the most terrifyingly dark and kind of gloomy and majestically screwed up place imaginable and actually what you find yourself in is a suburb with these blocks that don't look very nice but to the outside eye to the untrained eye like my own they don't look as bad as you're expecting and so that in itself was an interesting uh process of reassessment i guess so let's talk about how the, mm. that collective comes together because mm. they're obviously some of them yeah. already know each other some of them are related they're all already doing their own musical yeah. projects as it is, how do they come together as that call? Well, crew? once again, there's a myth, and nobody knows for sure how true that myth is, but the myth is that the RZA, who was the producer uh, for the first five years, did all the production on all of their albums, came back from a spell in Steubenville in Ohio, where him and Ghostface Killer had, been, uh, had tried to set up in the crack game. Uh, RZA had ended up getting into an altercation with someone over a girl, and he claims that they tried to shoot him, and he shot one of them in the leg. And he nearly went to prison for it by some kind of minor miracle, was let off, came back to Staten Island, at which point he moved away from the Stapleton Houses area where he traditionally lived, right across to the other side of the island with his brother, 
his girlfriend, I think his first baby, I think Ghostface and one of his sisters, they all moved into this, I think, one-bed flat, and they all lived in this tiny little apartment. And RZA went out and started walking around Staten Island. It's a big part of the mythology that he went out and walked the streets of Staten Island and came up with the plan. And the basic plan was to sign the best MCs from Staten Island to do whatever he asked of them for five years, and in exchange he would make them stars. That's the, the, the basic theory. And actually, RZA had always occupied an interesting role because he was actually originally from Brooklyn. I don't think he moved to... I think he was about 11 when he moved to Staten Island, although, as I said, I'm forgetting various facts in the book. But in the book, it's correct, even if I'm wrong today. So he he sat slightly outside of the traditional rivalries. His his cousin, Jizza, the genius, uh, was living in, I think, the Park Hill area at that point. Uh, But he moved in first with his grandma on Targi Street and then into an apartment above his aunt's house, which was literally just... It's just around the corner from Stapleton Houses, which is how he got to know Ghostface, who was from Stapleton Houses. So through his connections with Jizza, he knew the MCs from Park Hill as well, and traditionally his apartment had become a kind of neutral space where people from Park Hill and Stapleton came and went there to hear his beats and record vocals for him. And in much the same way as the original myth of hip-hop is the block party where... Africa Bambata says, you know, everyone must leave their gang affiliation at the door and uh, in here it's peace, unity and having fun. Riz's apartment was like a micro version of that where everyone put aside their differences and went along with the idea that they were just there to have fun and make music and watch a kung fu movie and drink a beer or whatever. And so Riz at this point decided that he would put together the best MCs from Staten Island in one massive crew and it's never really clear whether the order in which it's claimed things happened is how it happens, but he always claims that it was his plan to sign a deal with a record label that would allow the individual members to sign again with other major labels, which had never been done before up to that point. The standard major label deal, they own everything that any of you produce for forever, in effect. It's uh, very good for the record labels, not so good for the artists. So RZA, um, they released a... They put money in, once again, there's lots of stories about who paid for the recording session or whether anyone actually ever paid for it, but they paid for a recording session, recorded two tracks, Protect Your Neck, and um, After the Last of Tears, thank you, yeah. And put that out on a 12-inch single, pressed 10,000, and sold them within the space of about three or four months. At the back of, I think, his cousin's boot of his car. They did shows, they sold them, they sold them into shops, they sent some out to DJs and got plays, and they all went. And at this point, there was a, the industry got interested in them. Loud Records was still a relatively new label, part of RCA. They didn't have enough money to pay them a huge advance, but they said, look, if we... So they offered a small advance, and RZA said, well, we'd be interested if you would allow artists to sign their separate deals which is what happened they signed to loud i think even before they'd actually fully signed the contract um method man and odb had already signed their own deals for much more money with um def jam and electra i think and then all gradually all the other artists signed solo deals so what that achieved was a that for you know, having worked in the music business, nobody really wants to like the records on someone else's label. There's always a sense of, even if you actually think it's bloody brilliant, you'll tend to go, mm, yeah, it's okay. I think, you know, I think he's a great artist. He could have done it. But, you know, there's a sense of nobody really wants to big anyone else up. But obviously what the Wu-Tang deal did was it meant that everybody had an interest in that first album, not just being a success, but being seen to be a success because they all had money riding on on the individual artists. 
So that kind of changed the dynamic of how they were accepted. And it also meant that for those first few years, it was just incredibly exciting because there seemed to be a record coming out. Well, it wasn't every week, but it felt like before you'd even fully digested one release, something else would come out and you'd have to start again and people would get even more excited. I remember the patch around when Raekwon's album came out and people just started to go, oh my God, this is, this is it. This is, the most, this is the most amazing thing ever. Particularly in London, because I think for various historical reasons, London, the London scene's always been much more interested in New York than the West Coast stuff anyway, to do with climate probably as much as anything else. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Yeah, listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Will Ashon, and we're talking about his book Chamber Music, about the Wu-Tang in 36 pieces. And, well, you've already mentioned this, but in the book you spend some time talking about the concept of authenticity, an idea that when I think about it, I imagine, you know, this idea that, oh, you know, pop music is, is fake and authentic is, like, for white dudes with guitars and stuff, you know, they write their own stuff and they really mean it, man. Yeah. What I found really interesting here is you talk about the concept of authenticity having, has a sort of inherent racism to the idea. Yeah, I mean, once again, as I said earlier, I don't think my ideas are particularly original. I'm trying to remember the name of the two guys who wrote a very interesting book about this. But um, the basic idea is that if if you look at the history of how the interest in authenticity came about... 
it very much ties in with the period in American history where record companies were setting up and they introduced a very rigid separation between what at the time they called race records, which was black music, and um, old-time records, I think they called them, which was white country music. And part of your sense of whether a record was authentic was whether it fitted neatly into those categories. So they were they were black guys playing country blues that owed as much to um, uh, Irish folk songs as it, di- as it did to anything from Africa. And yet they were placed in the, in the race records category. They became blues artists because that was where they were meant to fit. So there is something interesting about the way in which something which is so, I think, so ground into a certain type of music lover in which I count myself. I mean, it's a way of thinking that I know I've fallen into again and again and again over the years from when, when I was listening to to jazz and so on this sense of is it you know is it the real thing is it authentic are they the, are they the proper people doing it properly so it was interesting and i guess eye opening for me to to start thinking through the assumptions that maybe those notions were based on and i think the other beautiful thing about hip hop and about this album in particular is the way in which you can kind of see the because of the way hip hop works it's all the all the seams are on the outside so you can constantly see what a constructed object it is. So in a sense, notions of authenticity are kind of ludicrous, really. What they basically end up meaning is that you say it's not a work of art. You say it's only valuable to the extent that it's true or real or that they're talking about exactly what's happened to them. And when you do that, what you're saying is, I don't want these people to have an imagination or do anything creative. I just want them to report their lives to me so I can vicariously get off on the fact that their lives are more difficult than mine. Well, it's like, you know, the album has those skits on it, which... One wants to have a feeling that those things are somehow repertage rather than just, you know, made rather than just a bit of theatre. And that's and what's brilliant about them is that they sound so much like that. And I mean, I think that was their innovation in terms of skits at the time was you'd had people like Della Soul. I mean, the first Della Soul album is considered to be the the first kind of full skit based album and then N.W.A. And all their skits had been quite cartoonish and quite funny. And the skits on the Wu-Tang album are funny, but they're also kind of disturbing at the same time. And I think it's that tension that really interested me, is the way in which, you know, the the, the skit about Shamik from uh, 212 getting shot at, 212 getting shot out in the street, sounds like a scene from a Scorsese movie. And actually, I think I listened to it for years, thinking that they just recorded it while they were hanging around on a street corner, which is, I don't know what, I can't imagine what process brought me to believe that to be the case but there we are that's what i thought and so what i really like about those skits and i think it's really interesting about those skits is the way that they play with your perception of what it is you're listening to in a really clever really uh subtle and complicated manner and that's why i actually think it's a really good example of an album that's made stronger by it by the skits i mean there's a tendency with skits on hip-hop albums it became a bit of a cliche didn't it after a while and everyone had them and they were all a bit samey and it was those things where before you had a cd player or a vinyl, if you had a tape of it or something you'd have to listen through to them every time going oh god i just want the next beat to drop but i think on this particular record they they really do serve a purpose and they do make the the album stronger and and deeper as well and also related to that the idea of the truth or fiction thing as well and taking us back to this idea of why I think the, the concept of authenticity is is dodgy. It's always sort of suggested that, 
you know, whatever form of black music we're talking about, mm. whether that's sort of like, you know, slave songs or, you know, gospel or lead belly or, you know, jazz. And mm. obviously it, it works for hip hop as well. There's this sort of pernicious idea that it's somehow it's authentic because it's it's from the heart. You yeah. know what I mean, it's not skillful yes. or intellectual yeah, absolutely. music. Absolutely. Yeah, it's unsophisticated mm. because it comes from the heart. Well, actually, I mean, all the best music is sophisticated and from the heart. I mean, they're not actually in opposition. I mean, they're they're at their best when they're held in some kind of balance, aren't they? And that's um, which you know is one of the key for me is one of the key concepts that RZA has articulated so well, which is why I think he's such an interesting thinker about hip hop as a whole is this idea of balance there's a there's an anecdote in the book i think it's from actually from the tower of wu one of his own the the dao of wu rather sorry one of his own his own books about the wu-tang clan where he talks about being in the studio with true master and true master's terribly upset because he thinks one of the samples is out of sync it's off it doesn't sound right it's off and rizza keeps saying it'll be fine don't worry about it don't worry about it and true master's going but man it's off it's 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 off and eventually, Rizzo says he mixes it down, and, and True Master has to admit that it's not off. It sounds perfect once it's all mixed. And Rizzo says, I think, and that's what it's all about. It's off and on at the same time. And that's brilliant because, you know, when we think of balance, we tend to think of that kind of beige middle ground. We tend to think of it's neither one extreme. Whereas actually what hip-hop is about is about balancing extremes, you know, keeping them keeping them in a kind of equilibrium, circling each other all the time. And I think that's so that it's off and on at the same time. And I can't remember what you asked me now because I've gone off on one. <laughs> so I want to talk about, fly through some of the influences yeah. that, that we see on the album. So the first one, tell us who the five percenters were. Uh, yeah, so the five percent nation or the nation of gods and earths was started by um, a guy called Clarence 13X, uh, who was a member of Malcolm X's congregation at the Harlem Temple. And for me, it's fascinating because it's a kind of liberatory philosophy that comes out of what you'd normally consider to be fundamentalism. So what he does is he takes the uh, Nation of Islam text that um, they were using at the Harlem Temple with Malcolm X. I forgot to mention Nation of Islam. And he reads them and says, well, it says here the black man is God. So why are we worshipping uh, Elijah Muhammad or, or whoever came before him? Why aren't we all gods? And... That's, in effect, what he says. He says, I'm not going to go to temple anymore, and if I do turn up, I'll come in shorts, and if I want to gamble, I'll gamble, and if I want to drink, I'll drink, because I'm a god man. Who are you to tell me what to do? And so he leaves the temple, goes out on the streets of Harlem, starts recruiting amongst street kids, really, kids who are out getting themselves into mischief or whatever, and as part of that process of teaching them the lessons of his new religion, the religion of the nation of gods and earths, he uh, develops various tricks for them to remember them including using rhyming and acrostics a lot of acrostics or back acrostics which is an acrostic that you come up with after the after the event so for instance uh, they break down Allah as arm leg leg arm head which is people always thought was hilariously funny but the point is to say god is a man is is to emphasize that you're you're just talking about a man there's no there's no funny business. There's no little man in the sky with a, with a white beard. It's all here and now. And they do a similar thing with numbers. There's a supreme mathematics and a supreme alphabet. And what it does is it, it creates a very rich kind of linguistic play that is taken very seriously. So, so at the same time as you're playing with language, you're also doing something which is, which is incredibly serious. And actually, the nation of gods and earths, for that period of hip-hop, one of the things that I came to 
believe as I researched the book was I don't think you could find a more important influence on hip-hop at that time. And actually, I think in some ways it's impossible to uh, separate the two things out in the sense that uh, the nation of gods and earths is a syncretic religion, i.e. the idea is that each individual member draws on whichever source they like to develop their own sort of spiritual philosophy, and that might be... Chan Buddhism in the case of the Rizza or science in the case of the Jizza or orthodox Islam in the case of someone else and and the point is that you sample from where suits you to make your own unique version of that spirituality so in that sense it's just the same as hip-hop it's an extension of or an underpinning for hip-hop and I think the interesting thing about the Wu-Tang Clan is that before them there'd been bands like Poor Righteous Teachers and Brand Nubian, who'd rapped very much about that philosophy, the 5% of philosophy, whereas what the Wu-Tang do is they take that as a given. It's kind of a, a bedrock for what they do. So rather than rapping the theology of the nation of gods and earth, they rap through it and above it and around it, and it, it kind of suffuses their worldview. Anybody listening to this album cannot mistake the the influence of innumerable Shaw Brothers films. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's lots of lots of clips from sort of martial arts movies. And um, rather talk about that, I want to talk about this concept, the, the idea of hip-hop itself as a form of martial arts. Yeah, this came to me, I think, I mean, it's it's there throughout the Wu-Tang's uh, work. That's That's basically what they're saying. I mean, for me, it partly came from reading a book by a guy called Joseph Schloss, who wrote a really good book about b-boying in New York, and he talks about the battle technique being at the core of what hip-hop's about in every situation because it comes out of those situations where either you're dancing in a battle or you're rapping in a battle. And so then he starts unpicking what it means to have an aesthetic that's built around this notion of, of kind of combat. And he says that the key thing isn't always to come out with your best material your best move your best backspin or or your best lines but to put your opponent off and that the way you win a battle the easiest most economical and graceful way to win it is by putting them off which is where some of the taunting and insult uh history comes from in hip-hop is that idea of of trying to put the other guy in a situation where when he goes to say his line he's so cross about what you've just said about his mother or his sister or so on that he loses his thread and, and messes up and you've won easily. Can we just let me just interrupt you there because let's yeah. in- intellectualize this little bit and talk about the concept of signifying. Yeah, signifying is a really fascinating uh, African American tradition that goes back. I mean, at least until the start of the 20th century. I mean, people say probably since um, slaves were brought to America. Um, there's a brilliant Jelly Roll Morton track on the Library of Congress recordings. It's called The Dozens, which is a, a sort of... Uh, the, the Dirty Dozens is a subset of what signifying is. And it is... It, when he recorded for the Library of Congress recordings, he wasn't constrained by his normal uh, record company, no swearing please, Mr Morton, sort of restrictions. And he lets rip on it. And actually, this is 1930-something, and to hear it now, you'd think... If it was wrapped, it would be, you'd think it was NWA or something. I mean, it's pretty raw. So in that sense, it's a tradition that's always gone on. And what it is, is a, a series of, in effect, language games. In the case of the dozens, it's often about your opponent's mother. And it's, uh, it's traded, often rhymed insults, in effect. But what they really are is um, games in figurative language. Uh, which once again ties in with the Nation of Gods and Earths, which is uh, uh, probably why you brought it up. Because... 
it points to the fact that there are all these traditions within African-American culture to do with, um, I guess you could call it linguistic exuberance to some extent. And in a way, the interesting thing about hip hop is that as it's the way in which uh, signifying changed and kind of mutated at this incredible speed once it was recorded, once people started putting down tapes of, there's a very famous battle that I've forgotten now, um, that I mentioned in the book. And that tape was apparently one of the first examples where people started listening to it. And suddenly you couldn't, whereas up to that point, people had used the same old rhymes. You know, it was a kid's game. And if you knew a rhyme about how fat someone's mother was, you would just use that every single time. But suddenly, once it was recorded and kind of became a an object in the world, you couldn't, you then had to come up with original rhymes. So in a way, that's kind of one of the impetuses for, for rap and hip-hop is this sudden explosion of um, a mutation of this tradition, this signifying tradition that was very old uh, when it was suddenly being turned into something that gained you a bit more than just some uh, kudos in the playground. Suddenly it had, a, it had a bigger aim. And while we're talking about influences on the album, I guess we, I guess we can't really get away without talking about the meth. Ah, yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, so meth is obviously the Wu-Tang's word for weed. And in the book, I put forward the theory that it goes back to a guy called Mez Mesro, who was um, a clarinetist, a uh, Jewish, white Jewish clarinetist from Chicago. Fascinating figure. Really fascinating. And his book's brilliant. I'd highly recommend. I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head, but it's a brilliant read. Very funny. Probably better than his playing. Because he wasn't a great clarinetist. He ended up moving to New York and selling weed in Harlem. To and everyone. To everyone, to the extent that, his, that Mez became another name for, for weed. So there's a, there's, a, there's a fat swallow tune where he talks about the Mez uh, in, a, in a reef uh, five foot long or something. And so I don't know, I've got no, no evidence for this, but it seems very likely to me that meth, as a word for, for weed, comes from that root of Mez. And obviously Method Man then became Method Man because he liked smoking weed so much. So once again, it's one of those things that runs right through uh, the Wu-Tang's music. There's a brilliant quote from, from Rizzer in the Wu-Tang manual where he says that he'd never advocate anyone doing drugs, but 95% of their music <laughs> was made under the influence of weed or something. Uh, Which does make you think, what about the other five? Yeah, so that's, they're probably the bits that weren't very good. So... um and, you know, there's interesting things about how, you know, Michael Veal wrote a brilliant book about dub that um, talks about the way in which uh, smoking weed alters your sense of perception. I mean, even it's in Ralph Ellison's The Invisible Man, he talks about smoking weed and hearing round corners and all kinds of odd things. And so in that sense, I think there is something to be explored about how it changes your relationship with sound. Just one more thing then to finish us off. Mm. And I mean, this is been great we're sat here two middle-aged <laughs> white guys from the midlands yeah. talking about uh hip-hop yeah um you also you know worked in the industry as both mm. a journalist and and in the record industry and you know now have written a book and i you know i don't imagine that the um the orphans of old dirty bastard are going to be seeing much of this um sweet grant of green <laughs> let's talk about the um, uh, i don't think i'm seeing much <laughs> of the sweet grant of green frankly let's, there um, we are. let's talk about <laughs> concept of cultural appropriation which you you go into in the book uh, you mentioned a um the review that zadie smith wrote of the um of yeah. the film get out and about you know the, the sort of themes of that film and you know there's this myth that grew up that you know the audience for for hip-hop was like you know yeah. white suburban kids who mm. you know wanted to upset their parents and tip a gore in the uh, 
yeah. in the 80s, and um, which, you know, turns out not necessarily to be true. But, like, I guess, you know, why, why did you even feel like you could write this book? Um, it's a really good question, and I haven't actually got a definitive answer for it, and I don't think there's a definitive answer in the book. I think I started off the book from a place of enthusiasm, nothing more, maybe not even really thinking it through. And I did feel that I'd spent 15 years running a hip-hop label and five years before that writing about hip-hop, so it wasn't like I had no history in it at all. It wasn't like I'd come to it like I came to Open Forest just because it was there and went, oh, here we are. So I felt that I was... I suppose I thought I was on some level qualified to write about it. As I started to research, that sense of certainty... Uh, evaporated to some extent and I did actually think about stopping uh, at various points in the book and just and just giving the, all those many greens <laughs> back to Grant a green Grant green this is brilliant it's, it's all we're, we're pulling away like crazy by accident um, so I did think about just 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 abandoning it and I think that was partly because I don't think uh, you can write about the Wu-Tang without writing about them as African-Americans, as, as young black men in America, uh, particularly people who came from the Nation of Gods and Earths, which is about black pride to some, to some degree. And as I continued writing, the, the situation became increasingly vexed and complicated. And I think the position I arrived at was that in the end, it's not for me to decide whether I can write that book or not. All I can do is be aware of those issues at all times, so not make assumptions or question my assumptions, the assumptions that I, that we all make all the time, and try to be as honest about where I was coming from and who I was as I possibly could without turning it into a book about me. Uh, I've done enough uh, stuff about me making a dick of myself in my last book, so I didn't want to do that, and I didn't think it was appropriate in this book to write a lot about me, but I wanted to make it clear who I was and where I came from so that people could judge the book based upon that, and beyond that, it's down to the reader to decide whether, A, whether they even want to read it, and B, if they do, whether I've done a reasonably good job or a terrible job, but at least I know that I've done it from an honest place and I've done my best to think about the assumptions that I no doubt have about all kinds of stuff. I think that's a good point for us to, to finish. So, ah. so I've been talking to Will Asher and we've been talking about chamber music, about the Wu-Tang in 36 Pieces, which, as you probably heard, is out in the UK from Granto and it's just about to come out in America. So who's publishing it in America? It's Faber and Faber, actually. So, yeah, it came out with Faber. It's, I think, the first book they've done just in America, excitingly. Will, thank you so much for coming in and sharing it with us. Thank you for having me. It's been lovely. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Imagine 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.